Uh, hi guys, Russell here. Um, so I've been thinking about markets, and one of the things that I learned from my American friends, which now, in hindsight, seems obvious, but you know, makes a lot more sense the more I think about, it, is the only thing that you can be rely on in the states is a profit incentive, right? So if if people are not incentivized to do something by money, then it's not going to happen, and that is the best way to think about things. Um, I found when trying to understand the states. And, you know, there's a lot actually to be said for this type of uh, political economic model. It's super transparent. Uh, everyone understands what's going on. And if you do have a disagreement, it always is possible to buy off your opponents because it's just money, right? So you can always negotiate. So it makes a lot of sense from that, from that perspective. And, you know, what I'm looking at when I'm looking at, and I've been talking about this for a while is sort of pro-capital uh, versus pro-labor policies, and we're shifting back to more pro-labor policies. And, you know, one way I also sort of look at that is governments and the sort of democratic structure of uh, governments that we see in the West was in a way of moving pro-labor. So, you know, building a government, democratic government, should enforce pro-labor rules, um, you know, theoretically speaking. Um, now, one of the things is when I've talked about the shift from pro-capital to pro-labor, we saw a shift in, in sort of pro-capital in 1980 or so. Um, and this sort of lined up with when Thatcher and Reagan came to power, and particularly in the UK, uh, we saw the mass privatization of uh, public corporates and public assets. Now, the thing about privatization, which was a transfer of public assets to the private sector, um, was that it was not just a transfer of assets, it was also the movement of government-controlled competition from the private sector. So this had the benefit of allowing more rational pricing in many cases. But there was a problem with that, is that when you have a government-controlled institution, it's not, it is going to be stable even as profits fall. You're not going to see uh, jobs get cut, you're not going to see in, in, uh, investment fall unless government decide that to, to do that. And so as you move from, as you privatize more and more of the economy, the business cycle became more and more pronounced, right? So you have more downside. And so this has led to governments need to intervene more and more to keep the economy going, if that makes sense. And that's not just, you know, lower interest rates, but even more spending. So even though the move of pro-capital from 1980 onwards has seen huge uh, GDP growth, uh, huge wealth creation. If we look at like US gross government debt obligations, they are back at sort of peak World War II type levels. You know, so the government is not making any money, even though uh, house prices are strong, employment's full, they just don't actually generate the revenues to cover the spending that is needed by governments to keep GDP growing. And that sort of makes sense if you look back at the pre, uh, you know, 1930s and the area before that used to have huge downward moves in the economy and deflationary cycles were quite common because government wasn't there to intervene. Um, and then, you know, post-World War II, we had a very heavily interventionist government. We had huge growth, which got GDP levels down. And now we've tried to have the best of both worlds where we have no government or less government intervention to the economy, but not the same sort of uh you know, deflationary spirals that we used to see pre-World War II. And the net result has been ever-increasing government debt.
Um, now, this combination of selling off public assets uh, uh, and trying to get you know, private sector to run uh, as much of the economy as possible, combined with government spending to try and keep economic growth going and to be as bullish as possible, and you know, also lower tax rates, particularly for corporates, has meant that what we've started to see is that the public wealth in uh, UK, US, and most developed markets has actually gone negative. So that is, the government actually has less, uh, uh, has more debt than assets. Okay. Um, so you sort of, to me, you ask the question, well, if, if the governments have negative wealth, how can government debt consider, be considered risk-free? If that makes sense. Now, if they don't actually have the money to back, back it up, how can it be considered risk-free? Um, and so, you know, there are two ways you can answer it. One is they can just print money endlessly, so it doesn't really matter. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Um, although that's sort of seen as deflationary, uh, which is, uh, sorry, inflationary, uh, and, and is considered not great. Uh, or, you know, the sort of other view you get is that governments have infinite power uh, to, uh, to infinite power to raise taxes and nationalize assets if and when they need to meet obligations. Now, the problem with, you know, those two views, first one is we still have independent central banks, you know, that may be changing, but they're still there they're raising interest rates. Um, and so they're raising interest rates to try and control inflation. The second one it would require a very left-wing movement in particularly U.S. politics to make that happen. Um, and if I look at the U.S. at the moment, you know, the both parties are, I think, committed to, to more spending, particularly if Trump gets back in uh, as president for Republicans. Uh, and and the, the Republicans in particular have absolutely uh, no agenda to raise taxes whatsoever. And in fact, you know, uh, looking for, you know, to cut taxes even more. Um, and if you look at like secular trends in the states, California has seen its population decline, Texas has seen an increase. Uh, famously, California has high taxes, Texas low taxes. So the trend to lower tax collection is secular. Um, and so for me, absent some massive sea, some crisis in the states, it's hard to see how that changes. I mean, if you look at corporate tax rates as well, they've just continued to go lower and lower, particularly effective tax rates. Now, what is interesting, so when I put that all together, is that you know, it is making, if you look at like the recent sort of debt negotiations, the debt ceiling negotiations in the States, what we saw was what was what by US debt level uh, standards, a very, very rapid or high increase in the five-year CDS uh, for US government debt. This is priced in euros, okay, but um, still it was very interesting. That's That's what you have to look at. And it was back to sort of what we saw in the sort of 2008, 2009 period. So a massive sort of betting on U.S. Uh, sovereign debt, you know, p- potentially defaulting. And, you know, this is odd, you know, compared to 08. You know, house prices are high. Un- uh, unemployment is very low. Uh, stock market is, you know, not actually that far off highs. So, you know, you would think it's a very safe sovereign credit. But I think the market is picking up here that politically – defaulting on U.S. debt might actually make sense. And here's where it gets really problematic, uh, I think, for for Treasury holders, 
is that if we look at like Apple's so the biggest company in the world, biggest stock in, in, in the S&P 500, is that Apple CDSs, and this is in dollar terms, but five-year CDS has barely moved. In fact, at you know, 27 is well, well below the level that we're seeing for US sovereign debt, which seems to be implying that we could live in a world where the US defaults on its debt, but Apple keeps paying, right? Is that possible? Well, actually, I think it can. If you look at the way Apple has set itself up in Europe, even though Europe is a hugely profitable market for it, for many years it didn't pay any tax at all. Uh, it ran a very uh, dubious scheme uh, through Ireland and Holland where it was a resident neither, and so paid no tax in Europe. Uh, and personally, I get very hacked off when the UK government asked me to pay more tax when they could go and actually just raid Apple uh, or Facebook or Google, uh, you know, if they wanted to. They have that power, but they choose not to extend it. And so here is the problem which I'm trying to get is that if you look at what, you know, this debt ceiling was an issue, it was a crisis. Okay, we start to see default uh, pricing, CDS pricing higher. Usually you would expect when a country is talking about, you know, defaulting on its debt or not paying its debt, you would normally see that currency weaken, which is actually normally the way the U.S. has sort of defaulted on its debt is it weakens the currency dramatically. So foreigners who don't get to vote get absolutely shafted on in U.S. treasuries, uh, and, you know, that's fine. You know, and they don't vote, so no one really cares about them. And what we have seen, and you've seen it today, because, you know, uh, even today, is the U.S. dollar has not weakened. It has not weakened dramatically at all. Uh, and so foreign holders of treasuries are not getting defaulted on that way. Okay, so to ease a burden on the U.S. government, they would probably need to do something else because it's not coming through the currency market. And if you understand the way modern central banks are working, both in Europe and Japan, you know, they don't want to see their currency strengthen versus a dollar. So it's that sort of artificial default through currency is, is not available. And so, you know, if you start looking at the treasury market, you know, what's happened over the last, you know, 15, 20 years is that the Federal Reserve has become a big owner of, of treasury, so you can default against them. Uh, they might go bankrupt, but they just print more money. But you can default against them. Uh, they don't vote. No one cares about them. Central banks, you know, China still owns nearly a trillion of US debt. You can default on them. Who cares about them? Uh, and you could probably default on the Japanese somehow, do some sort of scam on them. You know, it wouldn't be a problem. And so, you know, if you look at, for what I'm trying to say is in the current U.S. political makeup, and honestly, this is analysis you do of emerging markets all the time. What's the political setup of this country? How much, you know, what's the chance they're going to default? You do that all the time in, in markets like Mexico, Brazil, Argentina. Polit politics makes all the difference in debt. When I'm looking at the U.S. political setup, not only in the States, but how uh, other big countries are reacting you know, and you can sort of, for me, see, you know, the chances of the U.S. actually defaulting on its debt are actually rising, and the market has really worked it out. And as it's not affecting corporate borrowing costs, it actually is making it even more likely. You know, if the S&P goes up when the government talks about defaulting on debt, not, that's not going to stop them. If Apple is not seeing its credit risks rise when U.S. government talks about defaulting on its debt, well, that's, they're not going to be bothered by it. You know, they'll be like, fine, this is actually bullish. If you guys default on your debt, then, you know, after a while, you can then spend some more and keep growth, growth going really strong. And we love that. And so what I'm trying to say is the market is, I think, worked out 
that the incentive structure, like I said, the money structure on the incentive structure in the States is starting to push much more heavily towards U.S. default. Um, and so can we really consider the U.S. Treasury a, a risk-free asset anymore? Uh, unless something changes, probably not. All right, there you go. Stay safe. We'll talk soon. Ciao.